way through the text, continuing our way through Romans chapter 4. And so I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 4. This morning we're going to just focus in on uh, verses 9 to 11. And I, I have to remind you of this. I think it's always uh, uh, an important reminder. Uh, this, this is a very convenient device. It keeps us in perpetual contact with the world. But um, at the current time, we don't want contact with the world. Amen? We want to have contact with Christ and his word. This is not a tool to achieving that end. This is the appropriate tool, my friends. And uh, I know that uh, many of you use this device for your Bible reading uh, purposes. And uh, I, I never really thought of myself as an old-fashioned guy, but the more technology advances, I find myself becoming more and more old-fashioned. You need to turn that off, not just put it on silent, although I did hear a, a cell phone ring earlier, and so I would encourage you to have it on silent from the moment you walk in, but the reality is it would really be best for us to just turn it off, and uh, rather than using a cell phone for your Bible, you should use a Bible for your Bible, and uh, the reason for that is so multifaceted. I've been away for three weeks, and I've missed you, and when you rest, you find the energy to start saying all the stuff you've been saying for the last year and a half. So this isn't actually the sermon this morning, but uh, it's worth repeating. You know, we, we learn there are, certain, there are precious promises. God loves you so much, and he wants to speak to your heart, and he gives you these promises in his Bible. And you may not realize it, but you learn where in the Bible certain things are, and you learn where to find things on the page. We all struggle to remember chapter and verse references, but uh, I know so many people who never did a day in Awana, never once did all the different Bible memorization stuff that those Awana kids did, and when they, when they are struggling and God is wanting to speak to their heart, they remember a scripture promise, and they can flip their Bible right open, and they can go right to where on the page it is, not knowing the chapter or the verse reference. You, you don't, that's what we call tactile memory. It's a little thing they teach you when, when you get into education. You learn where something is. You may not remember what it is you're trying to remember, but you know where to find it. And you just don't have that same, the glass is just a piece of glass. It's not a, you can't flip to a certain point. You can't look at a certain place on the page. You can do that with this. You can't do that with your cell phone. And so I know some of you are here this morning and you just brought your cell phone and that's all you have to use. And that's well and good. Please use it today. But let's make it our September, fall, I don't really do New Year's resolutions either, but um, let's make it our resolution going into the next year. We're not going to use the digital device for our Bible anymore. We're going to use a Bible for our Bible, and let's use the Word of God. So uh, with that said, please turn it off if you can. Uh, if, you, if you don't have a Bible and you need a Bible, we've got tons of Bibles. You can go right out in the foyer right there, and uh, Mr., one of our deacons, Mr. Nolan Pasteur, is standing right there, and he can grab you one. He's like, whoa, he just said my name. Hi, Nolan. <laughs> he can grab you a Bible if you need one, and uh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to work. I want to just remind you uh, of the scripture verse that we're reading this morning. We've been working our way through Romans for the last uh, little over a year now, but uh, we come to verses 9 to 11. I want us to just really focus in on 9 to 11. Uh, Judy read all the way from verse 1. I, it's been three weeks. I, I've been away for three weeks on vacation. I've missed you. I'm, it, you know, I, I, was just, I just miss you guys so much. I love you so much. And I was eager to get back in the pulpit. Of course, the danger is when a preacher goes away for three weeks, he's thinking about that next sermon, even though he's on vacation, and it gets longer and longer and longer and longer. 
So I worked hard to trim it down to keep it short for you this morning, but uh, there is so much goodness in this passage this morning. There is so, so, there's such a sweetness, and I, I pray that you'll see it this morning. Let's just remind ourselves where we are. Uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 9 to 11. I'm just going to read this, and then we'll pray, and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and to illuminate the text before us, and then we'll dig in and, and we'll get to work. So Romans 4, verses 9 to 11, it says, Paul, Paul poses this rhetorical question. He says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or is it also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? And Paul answers the question. It was not, sorry, let me find my place here in the text really, really quick. It says, was it before or after? He says it was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. And then in verse 11, it says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Let's uh, just pause for a moment and ask God to help us. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we just say thank you for this beautiful Sunday morning to worship you. We've, we've lifted our hearts up to you now, Lord. We ask that you would speak to us. God, we know that in your word there are great spiritual truths, but they have to be discerned spiritually, that these truths are just not capable of being understood by the fleshly man, the man who tries to understand in his own strength according to his own wisdom, but that we understand, Lord, through the Spirit who interprets spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And so, Father, our prayer this morning as we gather together as your church is that your spirit would so shine upon the text of the page that we would be able to see what is there. And our prayer, Father, is that you'd open our hearts and open our minds to understand. And we pray, God, that you'd just strengthen our faith this morning. Lord, as we look at your word, our prayer this morning is that we would know you in your word that we would have a greater degree of faith, that you would strengthen our faith and take us deeper in our faith. Help us to understand the desperate need that we have to hear you speak, and help us, Lord, after today to be quick to listen to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the miracles that's recorded in all four Gospels is that spectacular miracle, that demonstration of God's power in which Christ supernaturally fed the 5,000 with just a few loaves of, of bread and a couple of fish. Uh, of all the miracles that Jesus performed over the course of his life, over, the, over his ministry on this earth, there's one that is recorded in all four Gospels, in addition, I should say, in addition to the greatest miracle of all, which is him dying on the cross and defeating our, our sins. But that miracle is the feeding of the 5,000. And when we speak today as evangelical brothers one to another, oftentimes what we'll hear is this push that we need to be concerned with social issues. We need to be eager to feed people, to take care of people, to provide for people's physical needs. And oftentimes this miracle is cited. They, you'll often hear things like, we need to be careful to feed people, to look after people, because after all, didn't Jesus feed the 5,000. Now, that is one application 
of that passage, but it isn't the fullest understanding of that text. If we were to turn to John chapter 6, and I don't want you to turn there, I just want you to stay right here in Romans. But in John chapter 6, Jesus, as he's on the verge of performing this incredible, incredible miracle, says to Philip, he says to one of his disciples, Philip, where, Philip, are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? They got 5,000 people gathered around, and again, it says 5,000 men. They probably had their wives and a few kids tagging along. I mean, scholars conservatively estimate there could be as many as 10,000 people that were actually there that day. And Jesus, looking at the crowd, has compassion because he sees that they're hungry, and he turns to Philip and he says, where are we going to go to buy bread? What grocery store can you think of where we can go and lay down a check and get all the groceries we need to feed these people. And of course, Philip, back in that day, just like us today, could have said, well, I mean, you got inflation, and you got, there's war in Ukraine going on, and there's the lack of grain, and I, you know, and what he actually said was not all that far off. He said, I don't think 200 denarii would be able to buy enough bread for this whole crowd, let alone enough for them to even get a little. Jesus poses this question to Philip. He says, where are we going to go? What grocery store can we go to to buy bread for them? Philip's response is, even if we had 200 denarii, and a denarii is a day's wage, so 365 days in a year, we're looking at maybe, you know, a little over half a year's worth of money isn't going to be enough to cover enough food for everybody just to have like a little biscuit's worth. But what we miss when we read that text is that when Jesus posed that question to Philip, it says in verse 6, he said this to test Philip, but he, Jesus, he himself knew what he would do. When we cite the feeding of the 5,000 as a concern for society around us to make sure the world around us is fed, we miss the spiritual truth of that passage because what Jesus is doing in the way that he framed that miracle was to say, Philip, you don't have the resources, you don't have the ability, you can't possibly take care of the needs of society. The question is a test. And the only successful answer, the only passing grade you would get is to say to Jesus, you, Lord, can provide. Philip failed when he said, I don't even think 200 days worth of salary would cover the expense. The framing of that miracle is to help you and I understand that Jesus, his provision is sufficient. He can provide for all that we need. When we confront the issues and the problems of the world around us, our response, just like Philip, is to constantly go back to our own resources and what we have and to begin to wonder, can I satisfy this need? Can I take care of this problem based on what I have and what I can do? And the whole purpose of what Christ is calling us to is to look not to ourselves, but to look to Him. 
You're sitting here this morning saying, Pastor Josh, what does any of this have to do with circumcision and Romans chapter 4? Believe it or not, this is the issue that the Jews are struggling with. Salvation, being made right with God in their mind, can be accomplished in their own power according to their own resources if they would but submit to the right, the, the ceremony of circumcision. And the whole focus of what Paul is trying to get them to see is that you cannot do anything to make yourself right with God. You cannot be holy enough. You cannot be righteous enough. You cannot sanctify yourself enough. No matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try, your resources will never measure up. And any attempt to try to justify yourself before God will fall utterly and totally flat. And he emphasizes it's based on faith. We say that it's based on faith. But faith requires an object. And what I want you to see this morning in this text is that Paul, in arguing with this imaginary Jewish debate partner, is calling him, this imaginary Jewish debater, as well as all of us, to see God for who he is in his word. Look with me in verse 9. He says, Is this blessing only for the circumcised, or is it also for the uncircumcised? That's the question that he's asking. Is it possible? The antecedent to the question is the blessing that he quotes from the Psalm of David. If you look back to verse 7, in verse 6, he talks about how David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And in verse 7, he quotes the Psalm. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Verse 8, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Three weeks ago when I was last here, we talked about this and we said that what God does is he does not count our sin against us when we trust in Jesus, but rather he counts Christ's righteousness to our account and he takes our sins and he counts those to Christ's account and then he punishes those, he punishes those sins on Christ on the cross. There's a blessing in that. We're happy when we're forgiven. This is the antecedent to the question Paul now poses. He says, is this blessing, referring to that counting, that that accounting of righteousness to us and sins to Christ, he says, is that blessing only for the circumcised? And this is a reference back to what we began to see all the way back in chapters 2 and 3, in which Paul begins to argue with this imaginary Jewish debate partner who's saying, yeah, but you can't just overturn the last 2,000 years of Jewish history. You can't just throw out the window everything we've learned from Abraham to today. It's about circumcision. It's about being a part of Abraham's family. And Paul's question is, is the blessing of forgiveness only for the circumcised, only for those who are part of Abraham's family? Or, he says, is it for everyone? That is the question. Now, his answer has two steps, and then from that we can draw a general conclusion. The first step in verse 9, the second part of verse 9, he says, he says, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now, that's a repeat of what he had said just prior, the beginning of chapter 4. We answer that question, faith is credited by God as righteousness. Your faith in God, he looks upon and he says it is deserving of righteousness, and he credits that righteousness to your account. That is the first answer that Paul gives. Faith, then, is counted as righteousness, not 
works, not ceremony, not circumcision, and by extension, we can say today, not baptism. Baptism does not save you in the exact same way that circumcision never saved them. The second, so the second step to his answer comes in verse 10. He says, righteousness by faith was counted before circumcision. If you look at verse 10, he says, how then was it counted? When he says, how then was it counted, what Paul's focus there is, it's very chronological. He's looking at the timing of these events. How then was it counted to him? And he poses the question, was it before or was it after he had been circumcised? And he answers it. It was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. God counted righteousness to Abraham's account well before he was circumcised. Two weeks ago, Pastor Tyler was preaching in my absence, and he did the math for us, and he pointed out that it was 14 years from the moment that God, that God made a promise to Abraham, and Abraham believed him, and God credited that to him as righteousness. It was 14 years from that moment to the time that God gave him the right of circumcision. For 14 years, Abraham is walking around in God's eyes as righteous before he was ever circumcised. And Paul draws our attention to that. And this leads us to the conclusion. It's inescapable. It's before us today. The blessing of getting right with God comes before anything we do for God, or it comes before anything we do in repentance to God. Faith is what saves us. I just made a great conclusion there but it's a dangerous one if we don't see it all the way through. Abraham believed God, and God looked upon Abraham's faith and credited the faith as righteousness. In pulpits all across this country, in pulpits all across the world, the slogan is reiterated and repeated over and over and over again ad nauseum, just believe. But there is a problem with that statement. What does faith look like? What is faith? What is the essence of faith? When we say just believe, what does that really mean? And perhaps the most crucial element missing from that exhortation, just believe, is the object in which we are to place our faith. Jesus is the one we are called to hope and trust and follow. In this particular passage, we see here, Paul is saying that Abraham did, in fact, receive the sign of circumcision. He makes the statement in verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So I can say to you today, church, believe in Jesus. Hope in what Christ has done for you on the cross. Believe that what Christ has done for you on the cross atones for your sins. If you hope in that and you count upon that, you will be saved. But let us ask the question, what does a faith in Christ look like? In Abraham's case... Following God in faith meant walking with him out of his home country to a land that God promised to show him. 
Walking with God by faith looked like receiving the sign of circumcision 14 years later. To believe in God is to walk with Him. To hope in Jesus is to submit to Him. We say that it is faith that saves, but it is faith that breaks the power of sin, and it is faith that leads the believer to walking in righteousness. This last, two weeks ago, the first week of my vacation, I went to family camp at Sunny Bray, and uh, I had the privilege in the evening time, I was invited to go out for a boat ride. There was an individual who was there, he was from Alberta, he brought his boat all the way over, and he offered to take myself and Natalie Milne and uh, my daughter Olive went with us as well out on a ride on his boat. And so we went in the evening as the sun was setting. It was a wonderful evening boat ride. We enjoyed ourselves immensely. And as we got out on the lake, I began to talk to this gentleman. I said, so tell me about how you came to faith in Christ. And he looked at me, and it's kind of interesting because I have a boat, and I usually do this with my boat. When I want to witness and share the gospel with people, I take them out on my boat, and we go out in the middle of the lake, and then I just shut the boat off, and then they can't get away, you know, and I just start to tell them about Christ. So I know this tactic. I've used it many times and once to great success. This man, we're driving along Shushwap Lake, and I said, tell me how you came to faith in Christ, and he pulls up the throttle, and he shuts off the engine, and I'm thinking, yeah, this is good. Uh, We're going to have a great conversation here. Because the wind was blowing, and the waves are smacking against the bow of the boat, and it's kind of hard to hear, but he clearly wanted to engage in this conversation. I assumed that he was a believer. He'd come to a Bible camp, not a believer. I wish I could say he came to Bible camp wanting to hear about Christ. But as the conversation progressed, it became clear that that was not actually his desire. I mean, Sunny Bray is a great deal. I'm just going to say, they cook all your food. They provide all kinds of entertainment for your kids. It's one of the cheapest options for a vacation you can find anywhere. He was there for the fun of it, not for the faith that we have in Christ, and not for the fellowship that comes by faith. He shared with me about his doubts, and that was the term he used. He said, I have my doubts. And immediately upon that statement, I assumed that what he was saying was that he wanted to believe in Jesus, that maybe he was a believer in Jesus, but that there were parts of the Christian faith that he didn't fully understand. However, as the conversation progressed, it became quite clear that he didn't actually believe in Christ at all. He shared with me about the fact that he was involved with the Passion Play. He was one of the performers in the Passion Play. And he shared with me that he was a professor at Prairie Bible College. And as a result of his ministry with Prairie Bible College and as a part of his involvement with the Passion Play there in Alberta, they had traveled to Nicaragua. And he said to me, how there were people, he said, he shared with me this story. He said, there were people there with the Passion Play that were going out into the streets there in Nicaragua and were sharing the gospel after hours when we weren't putting on the Passion Play. And the way he worded that, I wasn't really sure where he was going. I heard that and I said, yeah, that sounds great. And he says, that sounds great. He says, that's horrible. He says, you notice how Chinese people are immigrating to Canada? And I said, yes, I do. I notice that we have quite a bit of immigrants that come to this country. And he said, how would you like it if a Chinese person came and knocked on your door and told you that if you didn't believe in Confucius and all the teachings of uh, Confucianism, 
that you would go to hell. How would I feel about it? I don't know. I've never had that happen before. I honestly engaged with this question, and I said to him, you know, nobody from China has ever knocked on my door to tell me about Confucius. He says, exactly. And I said to this gentleman, I said, but what if Confucius were true? Wouldn't that mean that those Chinese people who believe in Confucius don't love me enough to tell me about Confucius? And he said, okay, here we go again. <laughs> if, if Confucianism were true, if there, if there were such a, Confucianism is a philosophy, so it's not an exact one-to-one -one comparison, but let's just, for the sake of argument, say there's a God of Confucius, right? If that God loved me, wouldn't he want me to know about his guy, Confucius? And if he didn't care to love me or didn't care to have a relationship with me, then Obviously, it wouldn't be a big deal whether or not people went out telling others about Confucius. And so I posed that to him. I said, you know, I just think that really this is a demonstration of love and care and concern. And he said, you know, I don't think people need to believe in Jesus, but I tell you what, he says, I do believe that when you look at all the world's religions, they're all about love and forgiveness. And this is when I began to share with him. David, in the Psalms, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. You say all the world's religions are about forgiveness. How then are they forgiven? And at the same time, justice is satisfied. I see, as someone who's looked at all of the different, not all of them, but a great many of all of the different religions of the world, there is invariably a demand for us to do more, to be more, but there is never a satisfaction of righteousness. There is never a fulfilling of justice. You try harder, you do better, and you can satisfy whatever the deity's expectations are. But do you know what the end result of that is? It lowers the glory of the deity as though an offense against him can easily be placated it makes him less holy, it makes him less righteous, it makes him very human. And do you know what it does to sin? It diminishes the horror, it diminishes the tragedy of sin. You see, Paul asks this question, is this blessing of being forgiven of our sins only for the circumcised? And the Jewish nation would tell you, yes, by virtue of the fact that we were lucky enough to be born into the family of Abraham as a Jew, and by virtue of the fact that we can do certain things, namely keeping the Mosaic Covenant and the creme de la creme being circumcised, based upon our own resources and our own good fortune, we can be saved. And Paul says, you're looking entirely at yourselves, and in so doing, there is a diminishing of God's glory and a minimizing of sin. It is not based on circumcision. It is based on something beyond circumcision. The object for your faith is not what you can do or what resources you have. The object, the focus, the place that you are to put your faith is in Christ who justifies. That's what he's driving home there. But when he makes that statement, there are two implications that we have to see. The first is that works, that is, 
acts of obedience do have their proper place in the life of a believer. Abraham received circumcision based upon the commandment of the God he was hoping in. If you say you believe in Jesus and you have faith in Christ and Christ turns around and asks you to do something, but then your response to that is, no, I don't need to do that, who are you trusting in that moment? You are either all in with Jesus or you are never in with Jesus to start with. If Jesus atones for your sins, and if you can proclaim and uphold the truth that it is Christ's blood on the cross which alone can satisfy, then you know that Christ is God, that he lived a righteous life, and that he himself did nothing to deserve death. And therefore, his blood is an acceptable sacrifice for your blood. His death can take the place of your death. But if you accept him as divine, if you see him as sinless, if you see him as perfect, and if you love God, would you not want to obey the sinless Holy One of Israel in order to grow closer to God? See, at this whole point, the question is relationships. Are we actually walking with God, or do we just want to justify ourselves by saying to ourselves, I'm good, I'm taken care of. I prayed a prayer 30 years ago when I went to VBS. One saves, the other one deceives. There is a place for works within the Christian life. But one of the things we see here from this passage is that we can never reverse the order. That's what Paul is emphasizing. We can never place works before faith. It must first be faith in Christ followed by works. C.S. Lewis, in his article, The Obstinacy of Faith, he's talking about this disagreement that scientists have with believers, and he goes on at great lengths to say about how a scientist will look at the evidence and proportion their belief or their confidence in the hypothesis based upon the amount of evidence that there is to support that hypothesis. And he says that scientists criticize Christians because Christians just believe, according to science, scientists, without adequate justification for their faith. And he disputes that, but he makes a really compelling point. He says, in order for God to help us, we must place the entirety of our hope and confidence in him. And to illustrate it, he uses a couple of really powerful anecdotes. He says, for example, consider a dog whose paw gets caught in a trap. In most instances, if you're going to help that dog free its paw from the trap, you have to engage in behavior that seems counterintuitive and that flies in the face of all the evidence. You have to, in many instances, push the dog's paw further into the trap if you're going to spring the trap open. And no, no half you know, sane animal is going to allow you to do something to them that they are convinced is only going to hurt them. They're not capable of seeing that your desire is good and that you want to bless them and set them free. They just see you pushing their poor wounded paw further into the trap. But of course, we would never criticize anyone who placed themselves and their confidence entirely in that of the rescuer once they were rescued. It always looks like a shaky proposition, but in the case of rescuing those who are trapped, if they are to be rescued, C.S. Lewis argues, they must place their confidence in the rescuer. 
Being put into a basket and hoisted out of a flooding car up into a helicopter overhead, that's a frightening ordeal. You have to believe that that rope is going to hold. You have to trust in that stretcher that you're climbing into. You got to know that the guy who's strapping you into that does the job correctly and properly straps you in. You're going up 30, 40, 50 feet, and if you fall, that fall can kill you. But if you would be saved, though you are going up into the air, you must place your confidence entirely in your rescuer. C.S. Lewis draws this out. To extract a thorn from a child's finger, a splinter, very often moms will take out a needle And the child, upon seeing that needle, will say, whoa, this is not what I signed up for. It appears as though if mom is going to get that sliver out, she's going to have to dig in there a little bit. It hurts. I don't want more pain, but more pain actually is the path towards salvation. Or you might look at a boy learning to swim. C.S. Lewis says they must believe the seemingly impossible paradox that liquid water is capable of supporting their body weight. It can. If they hold their breath, they'll float. And over and over again, we see this. Paul says to us in Romans that there is a place for works, but it must flow from a place of faith. And that's really the beauty of this illustration. To put yourself in the rescuer's basket, to give your hand willingly to your mom, to jump into that pool of water, all require you taking steps of obedience, but if they are to be righteous in God's eyes, all of these steps following after God must be the same way that any of these other steps in which you're hoping in human rescuers have to be undertaken. That contrary to the evidence, mom digging in my finger with a needle will actually lead towards my healing. Contrary to the evidence, this guy is telling me if I hold my breath, I will float. It must come first from a place of faith. Works don't save you. But if you believe and you trust, you will step out in obedience and perform certain works. Paul goes on and he makes this statement. In verse 11, it says, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Paul uses this expression. He says it's the sign of circumcision and it's the seal of of this faith, this righteousness that he had with God. Sign is uh, what points to something else. You're driving to Vancouver, and you'll see a sign on the side of the road that says 300 kilometers to Vancouver. Well, that sign is telling you the distance you have yet to travel until you arrive at your destination. The sign points to something else, but seal is a different word. It says a sign of circumcision, and he says that points to something, and he says it was a seal of the righteousness that he already had. This word seal serves as a legal protection or a guarantee A seal is something that was used by kings or government officials in that day and age. It was something that would be placed on property deeds or on wills. It was uh, something that you would authenticate a document with. In fact, Romans had very careful laws that prohibited the misuse of seals. Seals served as a proof of authenticity 
and they were there to protect houses and properties and all these kinds of things against being taken, especially in the event of a death, by someone to whom they did not belong. A testator and a witness were required to seal a, wi- to seal a will. In our day and age, the closest thing we have to a seal is perhaps a public notary. If any of you have ever bought a house, you know you go to the lawyer's office, you've already given them hundreds of thousands of dollars, you're going to have to buy this house, you're going to sign off on all this paperwork, and at the very end, they're going to take this machine, and they're going to slide your paper under it, and they're going to stamp it, it's going to uh, emboss into that paper their seal, you've already committed, you've already entered into a relationship. For the next 30 years of your life, you're going to be paying X amount of dollars every month in order to pay off that loan. You've already given thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars in today's market in order to purchase that home. You're already in the relationship. You've signed on the dotted line, and then they stamp the seal. Paul's use of this word is not accidental. Abraham believed in Christ. It was counted to him Abraham believed in God. He did not yet know the name of Christ. He believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then 14 years later, a long time after he'd been believing in God, he received the seal. The seal simply served to say that his faith, which he'd had 14 years prior, was already authentic. I want you to look back, though, and this is really the thing that we need to focus on. In this day and age, we talk about faith, we talk about believing, but it is all too convenient for us to ignore the one we are called to believe in. Look back at chapter 4, verse 3. Notice what Paul says there. In addressing this question, He poses another question. What does the Scripture say? Where does the authority for this truth come from? The truth itself is taught in God's Word. You jump down a few verses in verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness. And then he quotes the Psalms. It says, who gets to have this blessing of salvation by faith? The question he poses to answer that is, tell me, what do the Scriptures say? And then he cites the Scriptures. We jump on down here, and he says, the purpose of this, this is in in verse 12, he says, the purpose of this was to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. I want you to stick your finger here, and I want you to go with me to Galatians. Just flip to the right. Go past Romans, past Corinthians. If you hit Ephesians, you've gone too far. Go to Galatians chapter 3, and I want you to look at verse 7. In Galatians chapter 3, the apostle Paul is going to be at pains to show that the heirs of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, are people who have faith. But the reason I love this passage is because what it says about Scripture. Paul, arguing with the Galatians, who also were flirting with this idea of circumcision and embracing the Mosaic law, he makes this statement in verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 8, and the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith 
preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then it is those who are of faith who are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, the reason why I love this is because of what is said in verse 6. Paul makes the statement, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Well, that is a quote from Genesis, the whole event from chapter 12 to verse 17. You can see it in, verse 12, in chapter 12 or you can see it in chapter 17. But if you go back to either of those two times in which that statement is made, that promise is made, and you look at the one who is speaking, Abraham is not having a conversation with a walking, talking Bible. Abraham is talking to God. Abraham is having a conversation with the Heavenly Father. Here in Galatians chapter 3, what Paul is doing is he is taking Scripture and God and using them interchangeably. Such that when he says, here's what God says, Paul just as easily could say, here's what Scripture says. The reason why we have need to be so concerned for so many individuals who claim to be followers of Christ, who claim to be Christians is that they don't know the Bible. They don't know the God of the Bible because they don't know the Bible of God. There is no change between who God is and what he says. You and I are fundamentally different in that we are flawed human beings and we often say things that are mistaken. We can lie. We can say things that are patently false. But even when we're telling the truth, we can be wrong. Anybody ever watched the weather on the evening news? Now, I do not for one second believe that there's some grandiose conspiracy amongst meteorologists to just totally be wrong 95% of the time. I just think that they're wrong. They give it their very best. A broken clock is right twice a day. I mean, they're hoping for the odds to some extent. But they are invariably wrong. You see, when I speak, I could be telling you the truth, but even though I believe I'm telling you the truth, I could be mistaken. Look at how Paul attributes divine qualities to the Scriptures. He says here in verse 8, the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. What Paul is doing is he's talking about the omniscience of the Bible, but of course, a piece of paper... A leather-bound book is not actually alive. It's just a book. But the words and the truths and the things spoken here, as they are spoken from God, Paul has no problem assigning a certain quality to it. And the quality he assigns to it is that of inerrancy. It makes no mistakes. Another quality that he assigns to it is the quality of infallibility. You see, what if God had said to Abraham, hey, I'm going to bless all the nations in the earth in you. But then the plan did not come to fruition. Christ did not come, was not born to the descendants of Abraham. Then, though God could have been making a good faith promise, it would have failed. But God does not speak that way. That God is not that way. And what I want you to see this morning is that what God says is what the Bible says. 
What the Bible says is what God says. And the question we have to wrestle with is this. If we do not know what God is saying to us, how could we ever put our hope in Him? Think about it. If I tell you about a dear friend of mine, and I say to you, hey, I have this friend, he's uh, about yay tall, he's bald, he wears glasses, he's a great guy. We went fishing last weekend. You say, oh, that's great. So I know that this guy is bald, he's yay tall, he likes to go fishing. Those things would be true. You would know about him, but would you know him? You see, the only way any of us are ever going to be saved is if we can enter into a personal relationship with God. And having a personal relationship with God means that we have to go beyond just what the preacher says on Sunday morning. God willing, we're going to a church where what the preacher says is what the Bible says. We never want to hear from any preacher who's going to proclaim something that contradicts the Word of God because we want to hear from God Himself. But understand this, if we're to enter into a personal relationship, it cannot merely be the preacher telling us about God. We must go beyond that to know Him ourselves. And how would any of us ever know Him if His Word was not living and active and speaking to us right here, right now, apart from the pastor? But isn't that such sweet news? I want you to step way back out of the text for a second. Paul is arguing with an imaginary Jewish opponent. And his purpose in this argument from start to finish is to show that God is true. He has not made any mistakes that we can trust him. And his purpose is to take these Jewish debate partners right back to the scriptures. That has to be our purpose as well. If we love people the way Christ loves people, if we care for their salvation the way that Christ died in order to save them, it cannot simply be, let me tell you the good news of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. We start there. We offer that gospel, but we must take them to Scripture. We have to. I want you to think now about the folks you've been sharing with. Undoubtedly in your workplaces, undoubtedly in your families, in your homes, You have told them about Jesus, but have you introduced them to Scripture? I pray that you have. I pray that you will. Take them to the passage we talked about today. Say, did you know that Paul isn't just writing on his own authority, but that all throughout his letter to the Romans, not only is he inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he's quoting Scripture over and over and over again? Why do you suppose Paul does that? Get them to thinking about it. Get them to wrestling with it. When people get saved, very often they will speak of their experience of salvation as though they've just heard the gospel for the first time. And oftentimes there will be a dear friend sitting right next to them that will scratch their head and sort of wonder at what has just been said because they've been there the whole time sharing the gospel. Don Whitney has a great illustration of this. He says, we can't control how lightning strikes. Lightning comes of its own accord. But we can put out lightning rods. 
Of course, you can put out thousands upon thousands of lightning rods and never get lightning to strike, but your chances are better with more than with fewer. I read that through a link on Callie's blog yesterday, but I thought it was such a fitting illustration. For so many of us, there's a richness and a depth to God's word. But we want to tell, oftentimes we want to tell people about God, and that's where it must begin. But then the next step is to introduce them to what he says. My prayer for you is that you would indeed do that. You say, Pastor, they're never going to believe. If God opens their eyes to believe, they can and they will. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he created fish out of thin air. They handed out three pieces of bread and two fish. They collected 12 baskets full. This is a God who can provide. And they picked up all those leftover fish, all those leftover pieces of bread. At no point did God stop and gather up some grain, some barley, and bake a loaf. He just created it. If you were to look at the fish, they have gills, they have fins, they could have swum. They were fully formed fish, but they never swam a day in their life. They never had a life. They were just created, fully formed, in order to feed. When you look at what God is capable to do, capable of doing, you must understand that He is far above and beyond your own resources and your own ability. You must believe that. And then you must point people to Him so that they can meet that God for themselves. Let us not be like the generation of Moses that constantly allowed their hearts to wander because they continuously looked away from the God who had met them time and time again, miracle after miracle after miracle. The greatest miracle of all is the miracle of salvation. But if we would have it, we must see Jesus in the scriptures. Test your heart. Do you read devotional books for your morning quiet time? Nothing necessarily wrong with those. But it should never replace Holy Scripture. Test your heart in this. Do you like to read the Bible on your phone because if you get bored with reading it, you've got social media quickly at your hands? Ouch. Some of you younger folks are looking at me like, what? Let us hear God in his word. Let us enjoy the richness of Jesus. Pray with me. Father in heaven, help us to be committed to hearing what you say. It seems impossible. It seems incredible. The only reason it seems that way to us is because all too often we evaluate what you say from our own limited understanding, our own meager resources. Our prayer this morning, Lord, is that we would hear you speak, that we would know you and the greatness of what you're able to accomplish. Father, work salvation in our hearts. As we believe in you, as we are justified by faith in what you've done on the cross, 
let us eagerly look forward to the sanctification that you call for as we walk with you. Lord, do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.